morning, everybody. My name is Henry Michael. Um, I'm pastor over families and students here at Five Oaks. I'm excited to be able to, to be preaching this morning. This is the family milestone celebration. Uh, we do this every, you know, couple times a year, and this is just a chance to take a break from whatever series we're going through um, and, and, and celebrate families as they dedicate their children, but also as we celebrate baptisms after our service today. And so I'm um, excited about that. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the Christian life and what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of, of uncertainty. And so um, my daughter every single night before bed asks pretty much the same exact question. She asks, what are we doing tomorrow? And this isn't a question that is like, hey, I'm hoping we get to do something super fun. It's, it's really around anxiety. She has anxiety over what tomorrow might bring, the transitions that might come, the, uh, the uh, fear of new situations, boredom. All these things are running through her head, and she, I never really know what we're actually doing tomorrow. It's my wife that knows, so I don't know why she asks me. But I don't need to define anxiety for all of us. We've been living in the midst of it for the past two years, and this isn't going to be a COVID sermon, I promise. We're not going to keep not going over that. But this last couple of years has been a pressure cooker in our relation to each other and our relation to the world. We do have COVID-19, but we also have this economy and inflation. We have wars abroad. And all with that, we still have to raise our kids. We still have to go to work. We still have to worry about how we're uh, going to put food on the table sometimes. We're worrying about our future. There's, anxiety, there's opportunities for anxiety all over the place. But anxiety is nothing new. It's a human problem as old as time. In fact, scripture says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, this is a famous verse that many of us know. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful verse, but oftentimes if you've heard that verse and you've heard it in the midst of anxiety, it's usually thrown at you in an unhelpful way from an unsympathetic person that's basically just saying, get over it. Here's a Bible verse. I'm not going to emotionally get involved with you, but this is what the Bible says about anxiety, this and many other verses. So, we need to learn as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how do we move from using verses like this in unhelpful ways, as bumper stickers, as refrigerator magnets, as these unhelpful, emotionally detached statements into a way and a rhythm of life as we walk in the midst of uncertainty. When we read things like this, we feel like this is unattainable. When we read scripture, we think it's this mystery of, of peace that is, is never going to be cracked in this lifetime, but we do believe that the Bible should not be a mystery. That's why we open it up every single week, and that's why we want us to know our part in God's story and that it's something that we can experience today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14. We're going to be in John chapter 14. We're going to be in the NIV if you uh, have a device or your own Bible, just so you know that we're going to be in there. And so where we find ourselves in John chapter 14 is that this is the, towards the end of Jesus' life. 
Jesus has been eating with his disciples and he's telling them a lot of troubling things. He's saying, guys, this is probably our last meal together. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be betrayed by one of you guys. In fact, one, another one of you guys is going to deny me. And then I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be killed. And so these followers of Jesus have been following him. They've been hoping in him. And he's saying these really troubling things. They are full of anxiety. And there's two different kinds of anxiety that they're feeling. There's circumstantial. Yes, Jesus is about to die. One of their friends is going to betray. Another is going to deny him. There's, there's anxiety of this impending doom, but there's also an existential anxiety. Is they left everything for Jesus. They left everything to follow him. And he's saying he's going to die, that he's going to leave them. They're full of anxiety. Have we wasted our lives? And Jesus has told them many times throughout scriptures, I'm going to die. I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to uh, change the world through my spirit. But how often do we know the promises of Jesus, the words of Jesus, but they are difficult to understand and to find peace in, in the midst of anxiety? So that's the question we need to ask for ourselves today. How can we have peace in God in the midst of anxiety. We're going to see in our passage today that we can have peace with God. And we can have peace with God through the person of Jesus. And not just an idea of Jesus or, or just like this uh, essence of Jesus that we read about in the Bible. But the actual person, work, and future that Jesus provides for us today. So as we look at God's word, specifically John chapter 14, we're going to see how we can find peace with God. Before we do that, though, we are going to pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds, to hear God's word, and to see how we can have peace with God. And then after that, we're going to hear from one of our five ochres, a portion of our passage today. So our, our uh, prayer today comes from 1 Thessalonians 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is truth and power. As we look to the scriptures, remind us that we are not looking just, not just looking to letters on a page, not to a human message, but to your words given for us. We ask that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. Soften our hearts to receive and to understand your word. May it transform us and equip us to follow you and to bear fruit for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. John 14, 6 through 7. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Um, the first uh, portion of scripture, we're going to start right at the beginning of John chapter 14. What we're going to see here is that we can experience God, the peace of God, through knowing our future. When uh, I'm driving with my kids, and this is probably true for anyone who has younger kids, um, the younger they are, the more it happens, I think. Um, every time we're in the car, my kids will ask, are we there yet? It's led by my oldest. And it doesn't matter if we're going 75 miles an hour down a highway. 
are, are we there yet? I say, does it look like we're there yet? And they're like, no. I'm like, then why'd you ask? But for them, I got a picture of them in the car. This is when they didn't ask. We kept them out late, and that's our, the only way we can keep them from talking. Um, for them, it's a question of orientation. They, I mean, Navy's starting to get it, but the other two, they don't really know where time and place is or how long it takes to get somewhere. It's a five-minute trip or a 10-hour trip. It's, are we there yet? They want immediate action. They want to be uh, in our destination immediately and not have to sit in their car seats. But it's also an orienting question for these disciples, as we're about to read. Uh, Jesus is giving them a picture of the future, And when he gives us a picture of this future, we're going to want to ask this question, are we there yet? So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 14. So he's told them already, I'm going to die, I'm going to be betrayed. And so he says right here in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, that you may also go where I am going. You know the way to the place where I am going. And so what we see in this passage is that Jesus is doing the comforting because the disciples are full of anxiety for what we've been talking about. But the person who should be experiencing the most anxiety out of every single person in this story is the one who is doing the comforting. It is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is about to be tortured, who's about to be killed. Jesus is the one who's about to be betrayed. Jesus is the one who's about to be falsely accused of things that he didn't do. He's the innocent God that is going to be tortured on the cross. And the worst thing of all, Jesus is about to be separated from the Father, not just because he's going to die, but because of all the sins of the world, your sin, my sin, the sins of the future and of the past are all being put on his shoulders. Jesus was doing the comforting. Now, the disciples, they were in a unique time in history. They, they were about to see the world change completely, but they weren't necessarily going to realize it until later, and it wasn't in the way they wanted at the time or even were expecting. But what Jesus has been doing here, he's not just preparing them for this moment of this, of this crucifixion. He's preparing them for a whole future of uncertainty. In fact, he's preparing us for a whole future of uncertainty and opportunities for anxiety. If we read in Matthew 24, there's a famous passage in there that talks about all the things that Jesus predicts that are going to show this is going to happen. There's going to be wars, there's going to be famines, there's going to be rumors of wars, there's going to be persecution and death for the faith. If you look at our, uh, our news headlines, we can see that this is stuff that is happening. He says, this is the beginning of the births of child pain, and this is also going to lead people to start losing love because they're going to get numb to it and they're going to check out because there's just too much. There's too much. But this is the Christian life we are called into. And as we look at these things and as we see that Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled and we recognize, man, there's a lot of things for our hearts to be troubled with, we can ask the question, are we there yet? Is this almost over? How much longer do we have to deal 
with the pain and the suffering in our worlds. Now, Jesus doesn't give us any promise of peace, of happiness, of personal autonomy, of all the things that we've come, become accustomed to here in America. We've gotten lucky over the past years. I know a lot of us have suffered in a lot of different ways, but not through persecution, really not through wars for most of us. And we can start to think that peace personal autonomy and the good life and riches and wealth are due to us as the church in America. We should expect that. But what Jesus does promise is not that, but it's something far greater than the measly handful of years that we have on this earth. He promises us his father's house. This is a, a glorious future. This is something that is supposed to bring peace and give us something to look forward to in the midst of chaos. You're invited to believe in him. And he says, guess what? I am taking you with me. Now, this is all good. I think it's really good to know, okay, like, is all the stuff worth it? Is there somewhere we're going where this isn't going to happen? I think that's a really good thing to do, and we need to know our future if we're going to be able to deal with our present, especially if our present is chaotic and anxiety-filled. But knowing our future doesn't always necessarily help with the present because we are still full of anxiety. We are still full of what is the future going to bring, but Jesus isn't done, and, and, and thank God, because uh, the Christian life can't just be about going to heaven. As great as that is, what are we supposed to do with the rest of our lives? What are we supposed to do to those years leading up to that moment where we get to see God face to face? How can we live a life where our main concern, although it's still a concern, is, isn't are we there yet, but instead resting with the, with the person in the present? Because we can experience the peace of God now through a person. And that's what he says uh, in verse 5. So if you guys want to look back at your Bibles, in uh, John 14, verse 5, it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen the father, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus says here, not just now, but in the future. Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only way to peace. He is the only way to the good life that we all desperately want. And we say that all the time, but we still so often look towards other things, other people, to fulfill what only Jesus came to fulfill. 
Uh, psychotherapist Esther Perel in a TED Talk uh, titled The Secret to Desire in a Long-Term Relationship. So Esther is a uh, marriage counselor who is, has counseled hundreds of troubled marriages, and, and she's talking about different themes that she's seen within marriages that are having trouble. And she kind of goes back in history, says, marriage used to be or primarily be an economic institution. You were given partnership for life. You were uh, given children, social status, succession, and companionship. And those are all really good things. But now we expect more from our partners or our, our spouses. We still want all those things, but in addition, we want them to be our best friend, our trusted confidant, my passionate lover to boot, and we live twice as long. Those are all good things. But she goes on to say, so we come to one person, and we're basically asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging. Give me identity. Give me continuity. But give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort. Give me an edge. Give me novelty. Give me familiarity. Give me predictability. Give me surprise. We try to find hope in another person and what only Jesus can give us. But it's not just spouses. This is how we view our entire culture. One of the lies that our culture has told us through Hollywood, through music, through social media, is we see this picture of the good life, of what people and what things can offer you and give you and fulfill you through carefully curated Hollywood sets and Instagram posts, through songs that are, uh, they sound like they're super passionate and they're um, super, uh, uh, like, off the cuff, but really they have been written by people who know that this is going to get you to listen to their music over and over again. This is uh, music that stirs your soul. This, isn't, this is a plan by our media and our culture to tell you this is the good life. This person, this thing, this vocation, this experience, these are the things that are going to give us peace, fulfillment, and hope. Our Christian Sexuality Series, we're back in it with our students. We went through it earlier this year. One of the hardest parts of this is that our culture has been the, become the lens in which we view Christian sexuality. Either it's too conservative and, and uh, you are, you're, you're not letting me love who I want and, and, we, and we think this is too, this is too restrictive and why would, you, why would you not let me live out what I feel and how I want to express myself? And some people say the opposite and say this is too much and the Bible wants to make sure we push all this off to the side and we never talk about it. Our culture has become our lens instead of Scripture. Our culture has been the lens in which we view our relationships with each other and how our relationship is with God. But when the culture is our lens on how, what is the good life, it will always lead to hopelessness, anxiety, and frustration. There's so many stats out there of what it means to live your best life now, to, to follow your own desires. There's so many stats of the depression, the drug abuse, the issues that come along with following yourself and following what culture and society says. But then when these things disappoint, we move on to the next thing and on to the next thing and on to the next thing, constantly chasing peace constantly chasing this idea 
of the good life. And I think we do it. I think we put our hope in relationships and experiences because it seems easier to experience a physical person or a physical experience rather than the risen Jesus who's sitting on his throne and controls the entire world. We see this in Philip's question. He says, we don't know where you're going. Basically, he's, he's speaking to the anxiety and the misunderstanding of the disciples and what's going on around there. There's like, where are you going? We thought you were going to be the king. We thought you were going to come in and destroy our oppressors. And, and you were going to put yourself up as this new David, as this new conquering hero. And we were going to be a part of it. And we were going to be rich and powerful as well. But Jesus tells them the path to peace is not through that but that it's through him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one can come to the Father. No one can find peace. No one can find the good life except through him. He's saying, I'm the, the fulfillment of your political, your social, and your spiritual needs. Everything else is worthless without him. And this is one of the most controversial statements that Jesus makes. This is why people don't like Christianity. This is why people hate Jesus is because he's saying this is extremely exclusive. No other religion, in fact, even just doing the right things, uh, outweighing the bad, all these things. The only way to God, the only way to peace, the only way to the good life, the only way to the Father, the creator of the universe is through faith in Jesus. It's exclusive, but it's also inclusive. It's available to anyone. It doesn't matter how old you are, your race, your gender, what part of the world you live in. This is available to anyone who believes in him. Now, saying I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, that should be enough for the disciples. In fact, you'd think hanging out with Jesus would be enough, right? Like seeing what he's doing, seeing him do miracles, hearing, having private conversations that's not even our scriptures. That should be enough for the disciples. But this is something Philip <laughs> follows up by. He says, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And I find this a really shocking statement and I've had a lot of trouble trying to figure out where do I go with this part in the sermon because I identify with this in so many different ways. And I think a lot of us do. Because when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Philip's really asking a question that's very true to our desires and our wants is, yes, 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 that's really good, Jesus. I want you, and, and you're the way, the truth, and the life, but I also want you to show me the Father. I want to see the glory of the Father, even though the glory of the Father is sitting right in front of him. And we're going to cut him a little slack, because this is before he had died, rose again, and, and ascended before their eyes, and said that I'm going to come again and make all things new. We'll cut him a little bit of slack, but we do this all the time. We say, we want Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life, but I also want comfort and happiness. I want Jesus, and I want the love of others. I want Jesus, and I want financial freedom. I want Jesus, but I want control over what happens in my life, over the people that I spend time with, over uh, how, how fulfilled I feel in this world. But Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life cannot be tacked on 
to our desires, our wants, our views of the good life. In fact, we're taken out of the experience altogether. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All you have to do is believe. If we had some say or some action that we were supposed to do, we'd probably all take credit for our salvation. Jesus says, no, just believe in me. It's a call for us as Christians to actually follow Jesus. If you are living the Christian life, but you feel self-sufficient enough that Jesus doesn't really make a huge impact in your decision-making, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your work, in your politics, in your rest, in your every aspect of life, you're probably worshiping just a version of yourself. You're not worshiping Jesus. You want more than what Jesus offers. What Jesus says in Luke 9.23, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And this is a really weird place to be because what taking up our cross means is to die like Jesus. Die to self, die to desires. And he wants us not just to do it once when you are baptized or when you become a Christian, but he says do this daily. Do this almost moment by moment. Die to our desires. Die to our control. He says, Philip, if, if you don't believe my words, look at my works. And we see his works and we see the, the fulfillment of his works, even as we're going to see today, uh, in, through baptism. We see that in death, we were on a quest to find hope and fulfillment through the elusive peace of a person or through a job or a politician or anything else. But Jesus says, I am the way towards peace. Or in other words, that the creator and sustainer of the universe is enough. We don't need to add to it. In death, we lived for our truth, what feels good in the moment and, and what feels right. But Jesus is the truth through his word and how his spirit illuminates that word and through his presence. We're not alone and we take up our cross daily, dying to the desires of the flesh, dying to our own desires. In death, we live for performance of our talents and our efforts, but in Christ, he is life. He's life through his life, his performance, his efforts, his victory over death. We just believe. Dying to self, taking up our cross, it's going to be a really weird feeling because anything without practice is weird. Anxiety and living for anxiety is really easy. It's not hard to be full, feel anxiety and look at our world and just to let go of that. Dying to self is very, very difficult. It takes a community. It takes reading God's word. It takes knowing Christ personally and seeing and believing in him that he really is the way. He really is the truth. He really is the life and that nothing else can touch that. So if we can experience peace through a future and we can experience peace through a person, we need something to replace our anxiety with. And I think what he says in the last portions in 12 through 14 is that he uh, is replacing our anxiety through a mission. 
In verse 12, it says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, these verses have been read and they have been taken in some weird places and have disappointed a lot of people and have brought out some terrible theology. But understood correctly, these, these words bring peace and it brings mission into our lives. I think a great way of trying to figure out how this um, applies to our life is a couple weeks ago, uh, our leadership team took a retreat to a cabin as, as a way to look back at the things in the past year and look forward and pray for those things and to plan and to rest. And during that time, we did one of the most spiritually um, impactful things that you can possibly think you can do on a spiritual retreat or on a leadership retreat, and that's that we watched the movie Top Gun. <laughs> now, I had never seen it, and I know some people find that to be shocking. And I, they were all shocked because they all grew up in the 80s, and that was their heyday. And so this was a great movie for them. Um, and me and another staff member, we had not seen it, so we had to watch it. Um, and I also realized this is family milestone weekend. We had one, someone texted me last night a picture of them watching it after the sermon. And he's like, whoop, got to fast forward that part. And so just be, be aware of what's in that movie before uh, watching it with your kids. But I really did like this movie, I thought it was, uh, was going to be really hokey and really um, predictable and kind of lame, but it was actually really, really good because it was a great action movie. Um, we have uh, all the things that make up a great action movie. We have mission. We have uh, this, this big mission that they're leading up to, and we have the successes and failures, the heartbreak and the successes. We have uh, everything. We, we have triumph. Sorry, I ruined the movie a little bit. Um, at the end of the movie, to everything we want. But I also know if you've seen this movie, it's really unrealistic. And in fact, I, I, it was an easy Google search. How realistic is uh, Top Gun? And there's a lot of articles that said he, he would have gotten kicked out of the Air Force basically immediately um, for everything he did because it was very dangerous. But it did look cool. Um, <laughs> Sometimes when we read our Bibles and we hear things where Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater works than me, um, ask anything in my name and I will answer it, we, just based off experience in life, we think that's unrealistic. That's for the super Christians. That's for the characters in the Bible. That's for movies, but that's not for me. And I think we, we think that because uh, most of us have realized at some point in our lives that we're just normal people. We uh, go to work to pay our mortgages, or we go to school, come home and do homework, eat dinner and go to bed, or um, we're, we're, we're providing food on the table, we cook dinner. Most of life, when you put it up against, like, you will do greater works than Jesus and ask anything in my name, our lives seem boring compared to that. And I think that's why we're so easily taken in by advertising and through social media and through promises that say, hey, this is what the good life is. It's vacation. It's, it's spending money on this. It's looking like that. 
But we have to ask the question, when we see this in Scripture, we have to ask this very important question. How in the world can Jesus say, for me, a normal person who lives in a suburb of Minneapolis-St. Paul, or who lives in a small town of Wisconsin, how in the world can I do greater works than Jesus? How in the world, based on my own experience, how do I pray for something and Jesus will answer it every single time? And so we're going to hit this in two ways. First, we need to understand Jesus' empowered mission. A couple weeks ago, um, we talked about this. Doing things for God is a lot different than uh, Jesus empowering mission through you. And when you understand that distinction of doing things for God and, and Jesus working through us on mission, it will change our, the course of our lives. Because when Jesus is doing ministry through us, we can do greater things than Jesus. Now, when we look throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus walking on water. We see Jesus turning water into wine. We see him feeding 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and some fish. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing people of diseases. And we're, again, we're like, I don't know if we can do greater things than that. But to understand how this could possibly be true, we have to understand the difference between sign and work. Okay? This is an important distinction in how we read our Bibles and how this, this concept doesn't become a mystery. Because we see Jesus turning water into wine. When we see him walking on water, this is a sign. This isn't a work that we're supposed to do. This is a very specific sign that Jesus is over all creation, the creation that he created. He has power over the elements of our world and that he is going to not only have power over it, but he's going to make it all new. We're not called to do that. That's Jesus' uh, signs and wonders pointing to something greater. He's not just showing off. He's not just doing magic tricks. But that person of Jesus who is in control of nature, who is going to make everything new, is alive in those who follow Christ. And he is making you new every single day as you die to self. And that's a wonderful miracle. That is a wonderful and mighty work of God. When Jesus feeds 5,000 people, this is, again, a really cool sign of provision and that God provides for those in need. But guess what? Those people got hungry again. Those people are all dead now. That was a sign that Jesus provides, and he's providing something greater to us now, and that is his eternal word, his Holy Spirit that helps us understand his word and the ability to talk to God at any time and at any point. Jesus healed the sick. He raised people from the dead. And again, this is temporary. This is a sign that, that of something that's even greater that's going to happen that we get to participate in because again, those people got sick again. Those people died again. Lazarus is not still walking around somewhere. He died. But in Christ, listen, this is the most important thing. We have been raised from death to life. And it's not just this temporary death to life, but it is eternal death to eternal life. And we get to participate that, in that. Jesus did that, um, participated that in a very small in time and place. We get to do that throughout the entire world. Spreading the good news, bringing people from death 
to life. Again, Jesus wasn't doing magic tricks. He was enchanting our worlds on mission. And when our world's on mission, and when we see and we view our world as a mission, it changes our lives. It changes our normal lives into doing something great and deeply meaningful. Meaning we're not just going to work. We're not just married. We're not just raising kids. We're not just single. We're not just grandparents. We're not just hanging out with people. We are on mission. We are raising kids who know Jesus and go out into the world and bring people from death to life. The people in our workplaces, those are the people that we engage and we speak the words of life into. We have confidence that we have a future in Jesus. It's an opportunity to participate in miracles. The Christian life dumbed down to rules and regulations. That is, that is deeply uh, satanic. When we just look at the Christian life as just this normal, I do this and I don't do that and that's how I'm going to go through life. That is boring. The Christian life calls us into participate into a great mission. But we also have Jesus-empowered prayer. And this is important because the only time we can have peace with God is if we experience and know Jesus. When we know him through his word and then when we know him, that knowledge informs our prayer. Now, knowledge without prayer leads to pride. You can know a lot about God but not really know God. And you're the one who is self-sufficient. You're the one who knows a lot but no one really wants to talk to you because you aren't vulnerable enough to even show that you have any struggles or sin in your life. Prayer without knowledge turns Jesus or God into a, a vending machine or a genie or something that we throw a bunch of money at. And if we don't get what we want or that we prayed for, we either ask it in the wrong way, we, we uh, uh, didn't throw enough money at it, or we um, just didn't get lucky that time. But knowledge of God through his prayer makes it possible for Jesus to say, ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. Now, we can laugh at somebody who prays for a million dollars and says, ah, I didn't get it that time. God doesn't answer my prayers. Or for a Lamborghini or for, you know, an, their own island. We can laugh at them. But what about the things that seem a part of God's will? Those are the hard ones. Those are the things that we have prayed for and maybe uh, have experienced God answering our prayers. And maybe we haven't. Like maybe it's healing for our loved ones, healing of our relationships, healing of our world. Shouldn't that be a part of God's will? Shouldn't that be something that God acts in? This is where the rubber meets the road for the Christian life and how we view God in our relationship with Jesus. Because as Christians, we hope for goodness. We hope for experiencing the healing or the, or the uh, God working in our worlds. We hope for those things. But we're never promised those things. We don't live for that goodness. We don't live for God answering everything that we want. We live for something greater. Healing of our loved ones, healing of our friends, our family from disease, cancer, sickness. That would be amazing. Some of us have experienced that, but some of us haven't. So what do we do with that? Jesus might be answering a different prayer. And he wants you to have knowledge of him and your eyes are open enough to see that he is still working and he is still present. 
Because even if something doesn't happen in the now, we have a future to look forward to. And that's the hope that we bring to our loved ones who are going through sadness and through pain and through heartache. Healed relationships and provision and success, those are all really good things to pray for. And I think God does answer them and sometimes in some places. But God's also provided us a church community to love each other, to see the poor, see the downtrodden, to see the person who is in need. The church is supposed to help each other grow, help each other in our needs, and to, and to help each other as we are in deep despair. We have God's word that his promises are near, and they will never leave us or forsake us. And again, we would love our world without war, without pain, or without suffering. Those would be all amazing things for God to answer. And, and, and you'd think, man, that is God's will. We go back to Philippians 4, 7. We pray for this more than we pray for peace. It says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Meaning, it may not make sense. And there might be situations where there's chaos going all around you, but I want the peace that transcends all understanding, that despite my circumstances, I can have peace in God. But we also know that the Lord is, in Psalm 34, 8, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near. The Lord is listening. Open your eyes to that reality. He wants to answer your prayers, not just so that you can get what you want, but so that you can know and experience him in a greater way. You may not get what you want, but you'll get what you need. And you'll get God, which brings a future, a person, and a mission. We move from doing things for God, which is worthless, to allowing Christ work through us, and knowledge, future, and mission. So we're going to be moving into our time of response, and this is a time to practice that peace in our lives. We have different prayer stations. We have one in the back, and we have our candle lighting stations, and these are times for you to pray for the presence of God, for God to do miracles in our world. God being near us is a miracle as well. And so we use these stations, we pray in the back, we pray for healing, we pray in here, we pray for the light of Christ to be lit in someone far from God. It's not a magic incantation that we do and we light it and something will happen. Instead, we use it as a way uh, or as a metaphor for people to follow Christ. Soon we're going to be participating in life of baptism. But before that, we're going to participate in communion, which is a moment that we do every single week where we look back at the promises of God and his promises to never leave you, never forsake you. And we open our eyes to the reality that we're not just a community of people that, that come together and then leave and go our own way. We go on mission. And we look forward to Jesus coming back where we are going to participate in the Lord's Supper with him in heaven. And so we take the bread which is, God's or which is Christ's body that was broken for us. Take and eat. And we take the juice, which is Christ's blood, which was shed for us. 
Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you um, for giving us your presence. For coming on this earth to make things right where we were making a mess. Lord, I pray as we jump into our weeks that we have perspective on your future, that you um, remind us of your presence and that you remind us of the mission that you've put us on in our works, in our families, in our schools, on our teams, in our clubs, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, help us to open the eyes and enchant our worlds on mission for you. We're thankful for baptism, we're thankful for new life, and we're thankful for the ability to celebrate it together as a family. We pray for the families as they are dedicating their children, but we also pray for those who are taking that step to um, of baptism, and we pray for their walk. We pray for those who are not Christians to find peace in you, and we pray for those who have been Christians forever to find peace in you. I pray this all in your name. Amen.